can be seated. Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Our Ascension Sunday 2023 text will be Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39. And as you are turning there, I want to speak on two things quickly. Um, The first is that uh, we want to um, announce and and extend an invitation for anyone who would be interested in uh, any of our members uh, at Christ Community Church would be interested in uh, learning about teaching children whether that's for Sunday school or for during our worship service. Um, The summer is a good time to train children's teachers to be ready for the fall. So if you uh, would like to learn more about that, or especially if you are a new member, you've you've joined us in the last three to six months and you're looking for somewhere to serve, uh, children's ministry is a great place to do that. So, so what, we're, what I'm going to encourage you, if, if that's you, is to start with Jeanette Mao. And Jeanette, can you just stand up real quick in case they don't know you? This is Jeanette Mao. She is the head of our kids' Sunday school. I'm feeling like this is a little hot right now. Huh? Badness? Are you in control of this? No? Who's, who's in control of this? I, I don't know how to talk quietly, so someone needs to help me here. Start with Jeanette Mao, and then, you know, if, if we get so many people that Jeanette's like, we're good for Sunday school, she can point you to uh, Holly and Emily or, or Chrissy or Kevin and Alyssa or all the different people who, who lead different things. But start there uh, if you would like to learn more about teaching kids or if you're like, whoa, that sounds a little nerve wracking. I don't know if I can teach. Being a, being a helper who assists the teacher, um, but we, uh, we can always use more uh, people pouring into our children. We love children here at Christ Community Church, and we want to uh, train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And while that is primarily the responsibility of the parents, we come alongside each other in the church and help with that. And so please, if that's you, if, if you feel uh, the Lord calling you to serve in that way, Uh, Go see Jeanette Mao. The second thing I just want to comment on before we read the text. um, If if you have not been online or you're not in these online circles, you may have not heard that uh, this past week, uh, Timothy Keller died. Tim Keller was the pastor, uh, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, uh, uh, co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, Um, started a church planning network called City to City, wrote and preached extensively, and just a massive influence um, on on evangelicalism and our church and my own life specifically. And so um, uh, I'm sad about that. I know many of you are too. Of course, Tim Keller uh, confessed faith in Jesus, and uh, he is with the Lord right now. And so, but I did want to show you two, these two books. First of all, uh, anything that Tim Keller has written, any sermon he's ever preached, any YouTube video he's contributed to, anything that you can find with Tim Keller is going to be good for your soul. So that's number one. Uh, anything you see by him, it will not be a waste of time. 
But these two specifically, the first one, this was his first major uh, published uh, book. Not his first book, but this really is what kind of made him, you know, like Christian famous, basically. It's called The Reason for God, kind of like a modern day um, uh, mere Christianity almost. It's apologetic. It's belief in an age of skepticism. This is a great book. If you are having conversations with people who are skeptical about Christianity, this is a great accessible place to start. Or if you just want to be encouraged and bolstered in your own faith. Um, If you are a Christian who likes to um, buy, read, collect books, theology books, books about the Bible, you should own this book. If you're going to own one Tim Keller book, you should own this book. The other one I want to show you uh, is called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, And once again, anything Keller writes is good and helpful. But this book um, will change the way you understand the the idolatry of your own heart. Um, And so, again, if you're into that sort of thing, buy this book. Um, So thankful for the ministry of of Tim Keller, but it it felt appropriate to acknowledge um, his passing, if nothing else, because uh, in terms of people I don't personally know, he would be one of the top two who have influenced uh, my preaching, my theology and all that. And so um, I'm thankful for Tim Keller and check him out. If you've never heard of him before, just go to YouTube, Google, whatever, anything that any sermon it's you're, you're going to be like, man, this is good. So, okay. Romans chapter eight, our text this morning, verses 31 through 39. The Holy Spirit says this, what then shall we say to those to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, about two weeks ago now, I guess yesterday, 
It seemed like the entire world came to a screeching halt to watch the coronation of King Charles III. Beforehand, before the uh, coronation, I had people asking me, are you going to wake up early to watch the coronation? And then after the fact, I had people ask me, did you watch the coronation? And it's funny because even in our modern Western world, which is so far from the pomp and circumstance exhibited in the royal coronation, right? Like the modern autonomous Western individualist rolls their eyes at such things. You know, that's kind of like our temperament. Yet, when these things happen, events like the coronation two weeks ago, everyone is fascinated with it. They're fascinated with the elegance and the grandeur of it all. Here in America, we live in a very fast-paced and autonomous culture, basically meaning we want everything to be as quick and easy as possible, and we don't want anyone telling us what to do, right? It's the American way. What's the quickest and easiest way I can get this done, and nobody tell me what to do? So a five-hour coronation of a king, you know, that's not, that's not really what we do here, right? Um, we literally exist because we rebelled against that throne, you know, but when events like this happen, like the coronation of King Charles III, so many Americans are enchanted by it. You know, the, the Royal wedding, remember people were waking up early to watch the Royal wedding. Now we need to be honest. Part of the reason, part of our fascination with the British royal family is that they've been a train wreck for decades. <laughs> and so it's kind of like a living soap opera, right? Where you just, you, you can't really look away at the mess that's going on over there. But I don't think that's the whole story either. I think there's something else going on because regardless of what culture people have lived in, whether it's been in ancient cultures or modern cultures, whether it's been in more traditional Eastern honor-based cultures or more modern Western individualistic cultures, people are always infatuated with kings and queens and princes and princesses and coronations and royal weddings and thrones and crowns. It captivates our attention. And I think that's true, at least in part, because God created us that way. God created us to want and need to worship and serve a king. It's the reason why Israel, after the time of the judges, begged the Lord for a king. They were created to want to worship and serve a king. That longing, that desire is ingrained in our DNA. It's part and parcel of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now you may say, 
you know, you're wrong. Like we just said, we're Americans. Like our all ide- our identity is ingrained in the fact that we rebelled against the king. We don't want a king. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And yet we treat our American president like royalty. It's the closest thing to royalty in America. And they're treated that way. And we're, and we're drawn to uh, royalty from other countries or other times. And Disney's always got a new movie about a princess that we're, and we're just, we're drawn to it. Ultimately, we may not want that person to tell us what to do at times, but there's a longing deep inside us to want to worship and serve one that we perceive to be greater than us. In America, we may not want a king, but we worship and serve politicians and athletes and actors and musicians. We want to give our affection to someone that we perceive to be greater than ourselves. Today, as we remember and celebrate the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ on this Ascension Sunday 2023, that is exactly what we are acknowledging as a church. We are acknowledging that we were created to worship and serve a king and that that king is Jesus of Nazareth. The ascension of the Lord Jesus 40 days after his resurrection is a crucial moment in redemptive history. And Pastor Mike mentioned that just a moment ago. It's important. For 2,000 years, for over 2,000 years, Christians have confessed the ascension of Christ. We did so earlier as Pastor Andrew led us through the creed where we all confess together that Jesus ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Those words have been on the lips of Christians for over two millennia. The ascension of Jesus of Nazareth was his coronation as the king who rules the cosmos. Our text this morning is one of many pericopes in the New Testament to emphasize why the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is really good news for the church. But before we look at the specific paragraph that we read, it'll be helpful in the book of Romans if we can find our bearings um, because it's easy to take verses or passages out of context when we don't understand the intention behind what was being written. And so first we need to place our text within the context of the book of Romans, and then we will see what the text has to say. So the book of Romans opens with Paul's greeting and Paul's acknowledgement that he wants to go to visit the church in Rome. Paul really wants to come and see them. And then in Romans 1 verses 16 through 17, we see the thesis statement for the book of Romans. The book of Romans is about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And that gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul then spends a significant portion of the letter describing our need for this alien righteousness 
because he says God's wrath has been revealed against our unrighteousness. You'll remember two weeks ago in our call to worship that we read the entire section of Romans 1, 18 through Romans 3, verse 20. That's the section where Paul talks about God's wrath revealed against our sin, against our unrighteousness. And then in Romans 3, 21 through 31, Paul restates that this righteousness is obtained exclusively through faith in the gospel of Jesus alone. In Romans 4, then, Paul tells us that this is not a new reality in the New Testament, but this has always been the case. Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham was counted righteous before God by faith. Then in Romans 5, Paul tells us that it is only through faith that we can have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 11. We need peace with God because through Adam, we only have condemnation and death from God. But through Jesus, we now have righteousness and life. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Romans 6 then says, since Jesus made us alive, we must be dead to sin. And this life begins, is marked by our baptism. Romans 7 reminds us that in this new life, our fight with sin will not be easy. We will do what we don't want to do. Well, we will hate what we've done. We will war with our flesh. But we can fight victoriously because of what we find here in Romans chapter 8. We can fight our sin because Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 11 says that Jesus condemned sin through his death and the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has indwelt us. Because that's true, we are now heirs with Christ. We have been adopted into God's family, and a day is coming when the whole earth will be made new and our salvation will be complete. So that was like an accelerated, you know, bird's eye view of Romans 1, 1 through Romans 8, 30, which leads us to our text this morning, Romans 8, 31. And it's after all of that rich theological reflection that the Apostle Paul now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us our Ascension Sunday, 2023, Word of the Lord. And in light of seven plus chapters of doctrinal depth, after all of that, everything that is discussed in Romans 1, 1 through Romans 8, 30, it's after all of that theological truth that Paul asks this question in Romans 8, 31. This is his next question in light of all that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know what the Bible is saying here? You know what Paul's saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's asking, what are you worried about? 
We all worry. We all struggle with anxiety. Some maybe more frequently than others. Some to a greater or lesser degree than others. But we all worry. And Scripture, in light of the gospel of Jesus that Paul's been explaining for over seven chapters, here rebukes our worry and says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32 illustrates the lengths at which God is willing to go to show us how much he loves us. You say God is for me. In what way is God for me? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 32, this is how for you God is. If you are trusting in Jesus, right? That's a big if. Because if you're not trusting in Jesus, then God is not for you. You need to get right with God and God will be for you. But if you are trusting in Jesus, this is the length at which God goes to show you how for you he is. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, the son, graciously give us all things? Think about that. If God did not spare his own son, if the Father and the Son agreed together before the creation of the world that the incarnation was the only way, if the Holy Trinity went to the lengths that they did to ensure that the Son was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and that he would live a truly human life, and that he would die, and that he would resurrect. If God did all that for the one most precious to him, if he went to those lengths to care for you, to save your soul, to forgive you of your sins, to give you the hope of eternal life, if God did that, do you really think that he is not caring for you every millisecond of your life in the exact way that you need to be cared for? If God is for you, who can be against you? That's how for you God is. If he did not hold out on us with his son, with the one most precious to him. Do you really think God is holding out on you with anything else? Now, maybe we don't agree with God's choices all of the time. Maybe we think that we know better than God does because we should have this or that job. Or we should have this or that amount of money. Or we should have this or that relationship. Or whatever. But with 
Jesus. He gave us Jesus. If he's willing to give us Jesus, what do you think he's holding back from you? Paul says he's graciously given us all things. What does that mean? What does it mean that God's given us all things? It means, first of all, that in Christ, God gives us the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Now, that's the starting place, but it's also the most important thing. How important is it? It's the only thing in the world that if everything else falls apart and you still have that, it's okay. You could have everything else in the world and not have that, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And that is the saddest existence that's ever existed. God gives us the most important thing. He gives us back the reason we were created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. So that's, that's already everything, right? Can we agree? That's everything. If that's all he ever did, that would be more than enough, right? But God doesn't stop there. Also, through his daily providence, his daily administration of all of creation, God gives us exactly what we need. Always. Every second of every day, he gives you exactly what you need. Maybe it's not always what you want. But make no mistake, church, Every single day, God is giving you exactly what you need. Every moment. Verses 33 and 34 remind us that it, it really doesn't matter what any other human says about us either. Right? Their opinion isn't ultimate. It's, it's God's. Who shall bring a, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. There are people who will bring a charge against you. But it's God who justifies. There are people who will condemn you. But Jesus is the one who died. The world will tell you that faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus is stupid or archaic or hate speech or any number of things. If, you're, if you love Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, if you try to obey Jesus, the world is going to hate you. The world is going to say, that you are evil, that you are dumb, that you're on the wrong side of history. The world is going to bring a charge against you. The world is going to condemn you. But the world can't justify you. God is the one who justifies. And God is the only one who can justify. God is the only one who can declare us righteous because God is the one whom we've sinned against. 
And so God is the only one who can declare us righteous. That means the world is going to say you're unrighteous because you don't agree with this statement. They'll condemn you. They'll bring that charge against you. You are unrighteous because of what you think about marriage. Or you are unrighteous because of what you think about this or that. They're going to bring that charge. They're going to condemn you in that way, but they can't justify you. God is the only one who declares what is righteous and what is not. It's because Jesus died that we can be justified. It's because Jesus died that we can be declared righteous because Jesus is righteous. He's the only righteous one. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned by what he did or what he left undone. Jesus always loved the Lord as God with all of his heart. Jesus always loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus never sinned. And so because Jesus is righteous on the cross, Jesus experienced our condemnation. The condemnation that we rightly deserved because of our sin was placed on Jesus. And the gospel tells us now that if you will repent of your sin and if you will trust in Jesus, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. You will no longer be condemned. To repent means to confess your sin. It's what we did earlier. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. So to confess means to say, I have sin. I am a sinner. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed. I have sinned by what I've done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved God with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I'm not just parroting these words thoughtlessly. I think that's true. I believe that about myself. We confess and we turn from our sin. To have faith in Jesus means to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It means to assent that who Jesus is and what Jesus did is true. And it means that you trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus did on your behalf. Another way to say it comes from Romans 10, 9 through 13. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Repent and believe today if you haven't. This is the most important thing you can ever do. It will change your life. It will change your eternity. Look to Jesus But our text doesn't end there where we left off in verse 34 because Jesus' work doesn't end with his resurrection. You know, all too often we give the strongest emphasis to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And rightfully so. That, That is the gospel in so many words, right? 
the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the apex. It is the culmination. It is at the heart of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is not the sum of Jesus' work. It may be the summary. It may be the core, but it's not all of it. Verse 34 goes on to say that the Lord Jesus is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's what today is all about. It's Ascension Sunday. Theologically, this is what we call the ascension and session of Christ, that Jesus ascended and has been seated at God's right hand. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus visibly ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And so for the last 2,000 plus years, God incarnate, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, has been in session ruling as the king of the cosmos. King Charles III ascended to the throne after Queen Elizabeth died in September, but his coronation wasn't until May 6th. For King Jesus, his ascension and coronation were simultaneous. Jesus ascended to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of God and was installed as the king of God's creation. This is important because some of you, especially if you have a background in church, you've been in church for any uh, amount of time, you were raised in children's Sunday school or youth group, or you've been in Bible classes, you, you, the gears might be turning and you say, okay, pastor, I understand what you're saying, but I want to know what changed, right? Because hasn't God always been the king of creation? God is the creator, right? He created the world. He has the creator's rights to it. He, uh, he has providentially ruled the world even before um, the incarnation of Jesus. So what changed when you say Jesus became the king of the world? What do you mean by that? Great question. This is what I mean by that. Before the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, God was forever, is, will be ruling, governing his creation. God is not the God of deism who creates the watch and then takes a step back and is uninvolved. God is involved in every single thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. He is the author of it. What changed when Jesus of Nazareth ascended to heaven is that now there is a man a human being for the first time in the history of existence, a human being is seated at the right hand of God, ruling the world. It was promised in Genesis 3.15. It was shadowed throughout all of the Old Testament. And on Ascension Day, 40 days after he rose from the dead, the man, God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, ascended to heaven and sat down on the throne at the right hand of God the Father, where he has been now for over 2,000 years. That's what's changed. What's changed, it's not different that God is ruling in heaven. What's different now is there's a man ruling in heaven. That's really good news for us. Because we need an intercessor. 
Because we need someone to bridge the gap between God and humanity. And the only one who can do that is one who is both God and human. The man, Christ Jesus. By his resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated the new creation. That means it started. It's not complete yet, obviously. We live in a broken world full of sin and death. But the new creation has started. It's kind of like when uh, World War II effectively ended on D-Day. Right? This, this was, for all intents and purposes, this was it. The war was won. But it wasn't until some time later that the war officially ended and the fighting stopped. But in that interim period, there were some battles going on, but everyone knew the war was over. Jesus has won the war against sin and death. It's over. We still fight these battles. Battles with our flesh, with the world, with the devil. But the war has been won. Jesus has been victorious. The new creation has started. And the proof is your own heart. Do you love Jesus and hate your sin? Do you? That's new creation. That's not, that's not old creation. That's not Adam. Adam didn't do that. Adam hated God and loved his sin. And that's how you were born. And Jesus changed your heart. Now your heart is Jesus. It's not Adam. That's new creation. It's the reason we're all gathered here. Because we believe it to be true. The new creation has started. It's not completed. It won't be until Jesus returns, but it's been started. And Jesus has now been guiding us towards its completion. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, If Easter is about Jesus as the prototype of the new creation then Jesus' ascension is about his enthronement as the one who is now in charge. Easter tells us that Jesus is himself the first part of the new creation. His ascension tells us that he is now running the new creation. We sing about it every year in Advent, don't we? He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the wonders of, or the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. We don't sing, he will rule the world. What do we sing? He rules the world. Present tense. Jesus is king. Jesus, it's not that Jesus will be king. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. That's true because he ascended and he sat. In our call to worship, we read from Psalm 110, where David writes this phrase. He says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus asks the Pharisees, how do they interpret this psalm? What does it mean that Yahweh tells David's Lord to sit at his right hand? He's kind of got three people or four people in theory, that are in, involved here. You have Yahweh, you have David's Lord, David, and then David's son. Because, because in, in the covenant, God promised David, his son, would sit on the throne forever. And so Jesus says, how can David's son also be David's Lord? Right? David's his father. How is that possible? It, David was Israel's greatest king. What does this mean? And of course, Jesus was preaching Psalm 110 in a Christ-centered way. 
Because the answer is Jesus. The Lord Jesus is both truly God and truly man. So Jesus is greater than David in his ontology, like by his very nature, by his very personhood, Jesus is greater than David because David's a man and Jesus is God and man. But Jesus is also David's Lord, not just by his person, but also by his function, by what he does, by what he accomplished. Jesus is greater than David by nature of what he did. David sinned greatly. Jesus never sinned. David murdered for his own benefit. Jesus died for the benefit of others. David's son and grandson destroyed Israel's kingdom. David's family had more drama than the royal British family, believe it or not. But Jesus is the true and final son of David who fulfills David's covenant and establishes an eternal kingdom with citizens from all nations. And because Jesus ascended to heaven and because Jesus sits in session at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, because Jesus intercedes for us, listen to what the Bible tells us the result is in verses 35 through 39. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who's going to separate us from this king who ascended and is ruling and reigning? What that means is that because Jesus has ascended, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, that means nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Can tribulation or distress separate you from the love of Christ? Can cancer or chronic pain or death separate you from the love of Christ? Can the death of a loved one separate you from the love of Christ? What about persecution or famine or hunger or thirst? What about danger or somebody cutting your head off with a sword? Can any of these things separate you from the love of Christ? Here Paul quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. Uh, in that psalm, if you were to read Psalm 44, it's written by the sons of Korah. They are begging God, begging Yahweh to rescue them from their enemies. See, at that time, Israel was faced with enemies from the nations who hated Israel and who tried to kill Israel because they followed Yahweh. He says it was for Yahweh's sake that they were being killed all the day long, like sheep to be slaughtered. Paul echoes that now and says, that what they were feeling, you might feel that too. I personally have never stared death in the face because I'm a Christian. I've never had somebody threaten death for believing in the gospel of Jesus. But there are Christians throughout church history and around the world even today who have and who do. And even though it's to a lesser degree, culturally, emotionally, and relationally. Persecution does happen to us, though, doesn't it? Whether it is the death of a relationship or the death of our reputation or even physical death in the face of persecution, can that separate you 
from the love of Christ. Verse 37 announces, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. The Greek word is hupernikeo. It means to be completely and overwhelmingly victorious. It's the word that the company Nike has built their brand on. Nike, Nikeo. Victory, overcomer. Through Jesus, who loved us, Paul says, we are completely and overwhelmingly victorious. The pericope ends here with one of the most epic benedictions or doxologies in all of Scripture in verses 38 through 39. He asks the question, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can death? No. Can life? No. Angels? No. Rulers? No. Things present? No. Things to come? No. Powers? No. Height? No. Depth? No. Anything else in all creation? No. That is why the ascension of Jesus is good news for you. That is why the ascension of Christ is as important as his incarnation. It's as important as his life. It's as important as his death. It's as important as his resurrection. That's why every year we celebrate Ascension Sunday at Christ Community Church. The ascension of Jesus means that our salvation is secure. Because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. And the ascension of Jesus means that literally nothing happens in the world that is out of Jesus' control. And the ascension of Jesus means that Jesus will return just like he left physically and visibly to make everything sad untrue. The Heidelberg Catechism gives us three benefits for the ascension of Christ. Three benefits. For the ascension of Christ. Number one, Jesus is our advocate in heaven before his father. If that's not true, then there's no point in doing the confession and pardon. But Jesus is our advocate in heaven before the father. That means if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's number one. The second benefit is that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his believers, up to himself. So the benefits are forgiveness of sins. I mean, this means eternal life. Just as surely as there are humans on earth, there's a human in heaven. And he will take us to himself. The third benefit is that Jesus sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll talk more about that next week, obviously, for Pentecost. But church, this morning, take comfort in those three benefits. You have an advocate in heaven. Your own flesh is in heaven through Jesus. And Jesus' spirit is here with you. 
The ascension of Jesus of Nazareth is his coronation as the king of the universe. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. Jesus Christ has been ruling the world for the last 2,000 years at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will do so until he leaves that throne to return to earth, to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. At the coronation of King Charles III, the Archbishop of Canterbury declared, God save the king. The truth is, God did save the king when he resurrected Jesus from the dead. And he crowned him the king of kings at Jesus' ascension. And church, the good news is that God will save you too. Look to the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise because your son ascended to your right hand. Our very flesh is in heaven at your side. Psalm 110 tells us he is our Lord who sits at your right hand and that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that means that as a king, he is ruling and reigning. He is authoritative and providential over all things. And the fact that he's a priest reminds us that he can forgive our sins and that he intercedes on our behalf. And so, Father, we praise you for Ascension Sunday. We praise you the same way we do for Christmas and the same way we do for Easter and the same way we do for Pentecost because these are important anniversaries. These are important birthdays for us. And, Father, it is only fitting that we celebrate with a holy meal. So we ask now that you would bless us as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine to remember and proclaim that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.